0: Hello and welcome back to the Night Lamp Podcast. Hello, Adela.
1: Hello, Stefan, and hello, everybody who's out there listening
0: in podcast land. Yes, I think this is our our sixth episode.
1: I think you're right, Stefan. So
0: far, so good. Um, And um, just to introduce everyone who doesn't know us, uh, I'm Stefan Friedrich and I'm with my good friend, Adela Holmes. Um, and the purpose of this podcast is to chatter for us to chatter, and uh, and most of our chatter is built on a framework of an, of some understanding and some questions arising from our understanding of developmental trauma. And it's very
1: informed chatter, Stefan.
0: Oh, I know. I know. It's been a while since episode number five.
1: It has. Well, we've been doing a lot of travelling, have we not?
0: We have. We need to find a way to be able to do this remotely because at the moment you and I have to be in our makeshift studio.
1: Yes. Well, I have to say this. If it relies on any technical ability on my part, forget it.
0: We will be doomed, (laughs) if that's the case. We
1: will be doomed.
0: Um, Because since episode five, we've been, I mean, we're both now in Victoria. You went to... Cairns. To Cairns. Yeah,
1: after the last podcast we did. And I was in Cairns for four days. Yes, yes. And very busy. Yes. All of that time.
0: (laughs) And you returned. And then I went to... Perth, yep. I went to Western Australia, yep. I visited some wonderful places in Western Australia. Yep. I went, for the first time ever, you'd be proud of me, I boarded one of those tiny little planes.
1: I am proud of you.
0: And yep. I went out to a wonderful little town called Mikathara. Yep. And Um,
1: and anyone who'd heard our second podcast, I do believe it was, will know what an achievement that was for (laughs) Stefan, who has, putting it mildly, a slight aversion to travelling in any kind of a plane, whether it be a large or a very tiny one. But I do believe it was like a 10-seater, was it?
0: Yes, yeah, 10 rows. It wasn't too bad. But it was the first time I'd ever been on a plane that actually you know, stopped like a bus. Like a milk run. (laughs) On on the way, on the way. (laughs) So how
1: many landings and takeoffs did that mean you had to endure? Uh, A couple. (laughs) White-knuckled.
0: I was okay, but I've got to say I was very impressed by the flight attendant who obviously knew most of the other passengers very Mm, well. Right. And you know when they do the safety briefing? Well, her version, one of the flights I was on, her version of the safety briefing, Uh -uh. I kid you not, was kind of words to the effect of, you you guys all know the drill, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Which case, everyone nodded. I was too scared not to nod, so I nodded. (laughs) All the while I was thinking, I don't know the... Safety briefing?
1: <laughs> well, can I tell you this? When you're flying over land, really, I, I don't want to make you any more anxious than you already are, but frequently it crosses my mind when they talk about the life raft and the life jacket. And I know we're not flying over water any time soon. No. I think, splat, really, that's there's not much point
0: And the flight listening. to Meekathara is entirely over desert. Hmm. Which I loved, by the way. And this place, you know, it was so, really quite remote. Mm. Um, And I loved everything about it except for the fact that over the weekend, the one general store, I think it's called Farmer Jack's or Farmer Someone's, um, the one store that has most of everything you need, actually shut for the whole of the Anzac weekend. And Uh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Because it was Anzac
1: Day weekend.
0: So I was left. Without much, anything, well, I could have eaten at the pub, but you know how fussy fussy I am. Mm. Um, it would have so, been
1: a largely meat based menu. Yeah. I would. So I,
0: I walked about a k up yeah. the road to the Truckee Servo, yeah. and I lived off uh, I lived off um, Servo food. Okay. For a weekend.
1: What baked beans? Cans of baked beans. Yeah, kind of and do you
0: know what they they had um, a jar of Nutella. <laughs>
1: Seventh heaven, (laughs) Stefan. So we should explain to people who are listening why we were doing this travelling.
0: Oh, because we just love to torture (laughs) ourselves by flying. Well, I don't torture
1: myself. I love (laughs) flying. But um, we've been doing a lot of training. Yes. And this has been... A very good experience because I love training and I know you love training too. Love it, yes. Yeah. Um, but this has been the the main purpose for certainly your travelling um, and a little part of mine.
0: And I think the um, I mean, what we, everything that we do is obviously based on our understanding of of complex trauma or developmental trauma and everything associated with mm. it, and uh, and so. you know all of our training is centered on this Mm. and um i think one of the reasons why we have this podcast is because of our belief that people need to know this stuff Mm. and we need to talk about it in a way that is practical and i think it often astounds me i mean firstly it astounds me when i travel around just the um the variety of people, of professions, that turn up to different trainings. And we mm. do trainings on behalf of other organisations and on behalf of Lamp also. Um, but, you know, you'll often be in a room with, say, you know, you might be with foster carers, mm. and some foster carers are professionals with a great deal of academic mm. experience, and some are not, mm. obviously. You know, they're compassionate and caring, intelligent people mm but not so much with the professional qualifications and then we might have sometimes we might have a room full of social workers and practicing mm. psychologists mm. and so it's tricky when you have a real variety in one room isn't it
1: it is tricky and um and something else that's tricky which is probably tricky in equal measures but in slightly different ways um is uh, it's tricky for professionals who have basically ascribed to a different kind of framework of thinking about the children that Mm -hmm. we commonly work with who suffer from developmental trauma impacts Um, because often there's a bit of resistance to seeing them in a way that we think makes eminent sense of many of the things that they do that actually don't appear to make sense. (laughs) Um, And I think other professionals, I've often wondered, you know, it takes some time before they're willing to let go of another way of making sense of them and move across to this way. So that can be a challenge. And equally for foster carers who sometimes, as you say, Stefan, haven't really any other training, have not done any kind of professional training or some other type of professional training, but who come to the work with a very good heart and really good intent, they struggle because their emotion, uh, like the degree of goodwill that Mm -hmm. they feel, Mm. is often dashed and uh, subverted in a way by the very manifestations of developmental trauma impacts. And they struggle because they're kind of, you can see the internal struggle in them when they're listening and they're saying, um, yes, but I come to this child, you know, with a really good heart and I want to look after him or her and he pushes me away Mm -hmm. and he swears at me and he behaves towards me as if I was abusing him. I don't get it,
0: One of my favourite things is, and I never, ever get tired of it, is when someone like that mm. gets it. Yeah. When the because, light bulb goes on. Yeah. yeah. Because it's not only, it, I mean, it's my favourite thing for lots of different reasons. Mm. Um, partly because I know now that that child is going to get a more mm. um, intentionally mm. therapeutic care. Mm. Um but also it tickles me because I know that that person who gets it now all of a sudden will feel better. Yes. They'll be able to more easily separate yes. what belongs to them and what belongs to the child that they're caring Indeed. for. Indeed.
1: And they'll be far less likely to get drawn into those awful sort of labyrinths of transference and projection from the child because of all the previous relationships they've had with adults and counter-transference where it hooks something in the person Mm. and they actually start to bite back, (laughs) you know, Um, which becomes very painful and is often about two or three weeks before the placement breaks down. Yes. Because the carer is so hurt by what the child's doling out. Understandably, if you don't have a different framework of thinking, to understand it and to to help dissipate some of the pain that they're feeling and to maximize their capacity as you say to stand outside it and to maintain a position that is non-reactive and not emotional and when you see that happen and yeah. i've you know i've seen that happen so many times in a working lifetime, training staff and training carers, it's absolutely wonderful, and you can kind of see—it's almost as if a load falls off mm. their shoulders, and they their eyes open actually a little bit yep. wider, and they say, "Ah," oh, you know, and all thing everything changes for
0: them. I just—I love putting it in a way that people, uh, you know, really get it because mm. I also know that. You know, you and I know that training isn't just a matter of getting better at what you do. Um, One of the things I say to people when I go along and, and, you know, when I facilitate a workshop Mm. or a seminar is I say to them that I know that some people here will already know some of what Mm. I'll be talking about or all of it. Mm. Um, But actually, it's never wasted time. Mm. Because actually engaging in the theory, whether you know it or don't know it, is actually a really important part. I reckon it's about a third of self-care because actually theory is as important as eating well. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And uh, when I was managing Hurstbridge Farm, for example, uh, as you well know because you were there with me uh, in the trenches, (laughs) um, probably... On an average day, I would say about 50 or more times a day to staff, come in and sit down into my office. Now, let's have a think about what the theory would say. And I would also say that many nights, because that was a very hard gig getting Mm -hmm. that program going, uh, many nights I would go home and open up something that was written by Bruce Perry just to reassure myself. That I was actually on the right track, yeah, yeah. and that I was actually a giving good guidance and good training and coaching to the staff, but equally importantly, that I hadn't lost the plot, that I was still staying true to the theory, and uh, I some this I don't want to offend anyone because I'm not particularly religious, but I used to laughingly say that it was a bit like someone who would go home and read the Bible.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, the boy who was raised as a dog was my Bible, <laughs> uh, but it was a bit akin to that, because mm. it, what's the Bible? It's a framework for living
0: mm.
1: that people with a particular faith use to guarantee that they're on the right track, or to check their thinking, or to do things in a different way, um, and so I suppose same applies to reading the boy who was raised as a dog, but and and as you say, lots of people may have been to lots of training, I. But it doesn't necessarily equate to knowing what to do in a particular circumstance. I
0: think that's the, that's the trick, and that's mm. I think something that we've got a, a good handle on now. I mean, mm. mostly because you and I have been you know, the last couple of years we've been involved in training with a lot of people mm. who are not necessarily professionals or no. academics. And no. so you've got to put things in a way which, in which I have come to understand it oh. in a practical way. Like, mm. you know, so many people will go to a day seminar mm. or a lecture on trauma and child development, and I'll say, wow, that was really inspiring. Mm. I, was, I was so inspired by that seminar, whatever it was. Mm. But then they return back to care or mm. to work, mm. and they actually don't know what to do. How, would it, how yes. does it look like yes. now that I'm here with the child yeah. in the room?
1: And that's the biggest challenge in terms of working in this way, because we all default to what's familiar when we're under stress. Yeah. And what is familiar, when you're confronted with a child, and a child who isn't doing what you want them to do, Yeah. what's the familiar? You revert to usual parenting techniques. The fact of the matter is, as we all know, and as we say many, many times in our training, usual parenting techniques, which might work really well with healthy children with sound attachment and without developmental trauma experiences work for them they do not work for children with developmental trauma experiences in fact you approach them in a counterintuitive way so when people default to the usual approaches they will never work
0: no, and I find that when people actually truly understand why a counterintuitive way, like why? Yeah. Why, yeah. Why, why, why is this? it that? Yeah. Because otherwise, without an understanding, without actually, you know, without us actually providing people with a real understanding, what yeah. I mean by a real yeah. understanding is like, ah, of course, yeah. now yeah. I know. Now what, I get it. What, now yeah. I get it. Now I know what to do. Yeah. Because if, if we don't do that, what, what do we do? We revert to saying, well, I wouldn't put up, with yeah. that from my fourteen yeah, year old, exactly. why should I put up with it from yeah. this fourteen year mm.
1: old? Exactly. And one doesn't apply to the other. And that's no. that's no. what often gets people in hot water.
0: And I think the other the other thing that I like doing and and you've you've often said it to me as well, that that in a way, for example, foster carers mm. need to become um, very skilled yeah. and very Knowledgeable.
1: Well, foster carers are paraprofessionals.
0: You know, they, and they should be treated as such. Or Absolutely. We should treat them as paraprofessionals yeah. and, because and they are with the child yeah. all the time.
1: Absolutely. And all of the research that I'm aware of shows very clearly, and this is like for 40 years, mm. um, that foster care programs who respect their foster carers as paraprofessionals with proper involvement and proper respect are extremely effective at retention and extremely effective in terms of outcomes for the children in their care.
0: I was once uh, delivering some training for a whole group, a whole team of carers. Mm. Um, And, you know, they had with them uh, their clinician. And as I was delivering the training, you know I started uh, to do some you know we started learning about and doing some work on D- Dan Hughes's pace model mm. that's with the you know the approach of uh, mm. it's an acronym for playful uh, and accepting curious, curious, and curious and and, empathic and, and empathic, and he also adds love after the yeah TV some people placed, use that but yeah. I, either way, it works as pace yeah um and, you know, these people were getting it really well. No, they weren't professionals, but they were, they were carers and they were with the children all the time. They had got great opportunities to do some really good therapeutic work. But suddenly I was, believe it or not, I was actually stopped and the uh, clinician who was in the room actually said, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, they're not ready for that. These people aren't therapists.
1: She said this in front of them.
0: we was right in front of them, and okay then. <laughs> I I don't like to, you know, I don't like to um, to, to bag other professionals. No. But it wasn't right but in no. my view because, in actual fact, you know, these were intelligent people mm. who were with children who had the capacity to care for mm. them, and they could Absolutely. do so much more. Mm. Uh, and my responses, and I hope it didn't come across too rude, was well, actually, uh, I think they. Are getting it. <laughs> and you know what they did? Mm. And they did some fantastic work mm. using that model.
1: Mm. Not like you, Stefan, to be blunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, only occasionally. I, I jest. <laughs> but I think the other thing is that um, another thing that is very important in the delivery of training and coaching for both foster carers and for residential carers. Is it's particularly important for the person doing the training to have actually done the care.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, because I think it adds a layer of authenticity that is otherwise not accessible. It, it is not there. If you haven't stood in a setting somewhere, with a kid and tried to talk them off a train or talk them into a car mm-hmm. or uh, stop them throwing a rock at you or <laughs> all of the things that kids do do mm-hmm. when they're heightened, if you haven't really been in that situation, I think that staff who are in that kind of situation day in, day out, no. When you don't have the authenticity, they well, know not it. only
0: that, you—it's you, very difficult to understand mm. the theory Absolutely. in practice mm. if you haven't actually practiced Done it. it. Yeah. It's almost like, um, for me, it's like uh, becoming a mechanic, but mm-hmm. only going to university and reading about engines, <coughs> but not actually in- ever
1: touching one, going yeah. into the <laughs> yeah. workshop and yeah. working with an engine. Yeah. But I'll you know,
0: that. but you know everything. You yeah. know, it's sort of. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very true. Do you know at this? By the same token. I think what we're getting at is, this is my long-held belief, is that we make a difference when we integrate theory with practice. Absolutely. In other words, people who practice do the same thing. Because sometimes, you know, a lot of theorists actually forget the practice and Mm. they think that they can just theorize Mm. without actually actually living it and practicing. But By the same token, there's a lot of people who practice care, who don't want to know about the theory mm. because they say, well, you know, that has nothing to do with me, that's for you and your books, but actually it's where the two well, meet. It, it's the stuff that happens in the middle, isn't it,
1: it? It's exactly that, because one of the key, if not the key element of trauma-informed practice is that it is a complete integration of theoretical knowledge and practice and you cannot actually successfully practice trauma-informed therapeutic practice without both.
0: Well, it's informed practice, yeah. isn't it? and, and they,
1: you can't actually not know the theory because the theory is the model. The theory is what you're doing. So it's impossible to leave theory out. And it's like, you know, in the early days... Um, of writing Hurstbridge Bridge and setting it up, people used to say, "Oh well, yes, yes. Well, there's the theory. That's the theory. But what do you do?" And I say, "That's what I do." <laughs> that, <laughs> you do that, the theory. That theory, there. That's what we do. That's, that's exactly, exactly right. what we do. It. It's a very interesting balance, and I think it. Um, I think it. Actually derives from the fact that for the first time in our practice, in working with children in care or out-of-home care of any sort, the theory is, is evidence-based and scientifically based. It is not just a matter of ideological belief.
0: No, and it no, is not, not just a matter... It's not an opinion. It's not
1: an opinion and it isn't about the force of your personality.
0: No, that reminds me of uh, the other day I was delivering some training and there was one person in the training who just wasn't quite grasping it yet Mm -hmm. but did by the end of the day and I was really happy about that. It was kind of for a while because, you know, it's very confronting. It's actually quite confronting when you look at counterintuitive theory and when when you you overlay an old paradigm over it. It kind of it can look like oh well, you're rewarding bad. Well, it, it, to and all some, these sorts to many people,
1: things. it looks weird.
0: And the comment that I got was, "Yes, I I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying by doing all of this and doing all this rhythmic stuff and 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 keeping the child safe and and then you know validating him and all that. But if we don't deal with the trauma, he's going to end up in jail as an adult." And I said, "Well, I don't understand your question." Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, well, at what point do we deal with the trauma?" And I said, "Well, actually, we've been talking about mm. it. That is the therapeutic work, mm. and it's actually difficult to understand and, until you've got a real comprehensive understanding of of, of the mechanics of it, and of what's happening." Mm.
1: I I think that that is very difficult to grasp, and I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why in training. I like, I mean some people might say I do it too much. I don't think I do it too much, but then of course I don't, because I do it. Uh, I tell a lot of stories about children that I've worked with over time and I usually just do a snippet, so I don't talk about the child's whole life from the first moment I met them to the last day I worked with them, because that's not where the change occurs. The change occurs in the tiny little vignette conversations that you have with them.
0: That's right. It's
1: those tiny relational interactions that all join together to make change. So if you're looking at big change, you're not going to find it. You will find it inside the intimate communications that you have over tiny little things that the child may have done through a day tiny little bits of psychoeducation that you might do with them instead of a consequence. You know, you might say to them, oh, I think I know why you did that. You could equally say, and you probably would to a healthy child, mm-hmm. don't do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But you're not going to say that to this child who heightens at the drop of a hat. You're going to take a step backwards and you're going to say, "Ah, oh, I think I know why you just did that to me. Is it because or tell me if I'm wrong, but when you do those little stories about how you said that, using the same tone as you would if you were speaking to the child, that's where the training happens because people are actually hearing the whole event. The child may not be there, but I'm acting it out. Um, And for me, that's really important stuff in terms of being able to train To that level of detail Mm -hmm. because it's in that level of detail that people can hear how it works. People used to say all the time, and you'll probably remember this Mm -hmm. when we were at Hurstbridge, Can -hmm. we come and have a look? Can we come and you know spend a couple Uh, of hours? Yeah, just to see how you do it. (laughs) And I used to say, You can spend a couple of hours, you're welcome to come, but you won't see any therapeutic care in that two hours. Yeah, yeah, because you'd ac- actually have to be here for two weeks to see maybe half a dozen conversations yeah. and see exactly how they're done.
0: It's like having um, a great uh, veggie garden mm. and someone saying, can I come around for a couple of hours to look at your veggie garden and, well, and to <laughs> it's see how growing. it grows? Yes. That's a very and good because metaphor. I like your veggie garden, yeah. I want to see how it grows. <laughs> <laughs> and you, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and that's another thing. I mean, I, I love working with metaphors mm. rather than lots of academic mm. clinical jargon because metaphors are stories that we already have that everyone knows. Mm. And I think I I use metaphors uh, just as much with people that I'm training mm. and also and with kids that I'm working mm. with. You know, I work with a child and I'll always use metaphors. Mm. Remember, some years ago there was. Um, a, uh, a, a girl that I worked with for some years, you know, and um, I left the program and as a going away present, she gave me a bag full of little knickknacks and I said, oh, thank you. I said all, you know, all grateful and kind of fairly fake because I had no idea what these things were. It was like, there was a plastic tree and some other things and bits and pieces from an op shop and a comb and... And and I said, "Wow, thanks!" You know, must have come across fairly genuine. And uh, the young girl said, "Oh, you don't even know what that is, do you?" And I said, "Well, sorry, but I don't. <laughs> what is this?" She said, "Inside that bag is every metaphor you've ever used with me." I like and it. if you've ever stuck for what to say, <laughs> you, you can just pull one out like you do with me.
1: <laughs> nice one. But
0: do you know what it told me? It told me how important those yeah. stories were. Well,
1: it, it tells me also that, that it didn't matter that they were a metaphor, did it? It was actually... No. It, it, was there something that was... Um, Staged about them, yes, of course, there was because that was the intent. You were trying to demonstrate something, and this young girl was able to grasp that, yeah, and understood the intent behind it,
0: and understood what they were. Mm. I mean, you know, Mm. with fantastic intelligence, Mm. you know.
1: Mm. Yes, I think one of the things I reflect on, and you know. You've done some quite a lot of training. I've done quite a lot of training over the last little while. We've got more coming up. Um, is the importance of being able to train in workable size groups? Yeah. Where it's not so much... I know a lot of people put a lot of store by um, exercises and things that people do in a training mm-hmm. session that I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not very good at doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never actually been formally taught how to train. Um, a, but some of the exercises, and particularly role plays, you you mentioned the word role play, and everybody just rolls their People eyes. People
0: shirk, and, and in fear. Yeah. In fear. It's and like sitting on the front seat when you go and see a comedian yeah. and wondering when they're going to pick on you.
1: But real, <laughs> real really uh authentic stories and real opportunities for good honest discussion
0: and good conversation like i mm. i've often said, and i I know you do this in your training, mm. I remember your training very well because I went to I've, I've attended lots. lots of those <laughs> um, that often people say at the end, do you know what i've been learning this stuff for years and i feel like i've only just got mm. it today mm. and i know lots of people said that to you and i, I think i said that to you too. you did you and, did. and uh, i i think that one thing that i really like is that we both have is a conversational mm. style i mean partly for me that i i'm happy as i've told many people i'm quite happy to stand there and talk non-stop all day. Yeah. Yes, I'm I've happy noticed
1: to Stefan. <laughs> moving right along. I
0: think I think you. <laughs> I think could, I compete quite I well. I think I beat you on that score. Uh, I think you could beat me, but I say to people, mm. what I prefer is I actually prefer to have a long, a, a day long yeah. conversation. Yeah,
1: a, di- a real dialogue. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that um, that's a that's a st- certainly a style of training that I feel works well. Mm. And you're right, there, I think there are a lot of times at the end of a training session where I've had people say, oh, I've not really understood that before, but now I get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I will always say to people, I'm really glad that you have, because it makes an enormous difference. But don't be uh, put off if you get into a situation and you're not quite sure what to do. No, because right. you've got it here, sitting here today, and you'll try it out. And when you try things out, like when you try to do use that whole pace approach, yep. it's pretty clunky at the start.
0: Yep. Anything
1: you do is clunky when you start doing it. But you have to get through the clunkiness. And there's only one way through it, and that's to go through it. Because if, if you don't have a go, you'll never get there.
0: No a- and you get better. Yeah. It's like with any skill, isn't it? it? Is. I mean you're not a, you're not a natural born therapist mm. or, or natural born therapeutic hero. You, you practice you get better mm. and better and better exactly. all you do is practice, mm. reflect, mm. engage in theory, talk to mm. people, read, practice again. And
1: the beautiful thing that I really love about using an approach like PACE, which is really an intention it's the it's a way of having an inten- a therapeutically intentional conversation with a child yeah. about something you want them to understand and helping them through those processes of understanding. If you miss an opportunity, you never really miss an opportunity. Like you might miss it today and then you might go off shift or, you know, walk out of the room and think, oh, I could have said A, B, or C, or whatever, but you never really miss it because you can go back.
0: Yeah, that's a great thing yeah, about. And it's the
1: wonderful thing you can you can go back a week later and you can say, you know yeah. what, I've been thinking about you know when you said whatever it was to me and I said that, I don't think I gave you the right answer. Mm-hmm. I've really been thinking about it through the week. And I think I could have given you a different answer. Do you want to know what that answer is? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Because that's one of the beautiful things mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. PACE, the P for playfulness. And playfulness is a really beautiful, light way of helping very troubled children actually take the sting out of some of their thoughts and feelings.
0: And it's a way of giving a message. Absolutely. That I'm all safe. right.
1: You're safe. Um, So you never miss the opportunity. You can go back and you can say that. And nine times out of ten from staff I've ever coached, they come back to me and they say, oh, I tried that and it was fantastic. We had the best conversation because they've given it a little bit more thought. And they've gone back in with a bit of a battery of ideas that they might, where they might take things.
0: From my experience, especially at the beginning, it's a matter of courage. Like, mm. It takes courage to actually have a conversation with. With a a child Mm. about something to actually say, right? Here's the opportunity. Mm. I can actually go with Mm. this. You know, where it it feels more and more natural later. But at the start, yeah, it takes a little bit of courage. It does um, to not just let let the moment Mm. pass. You know,
1: it takes courage also to be playful in in a way that's not derogatory and is respectful. But where the ultimate message is one, as you say, of safety, you're
0: safe here, I, I'm okay, I'm, I'm all right, you know. Do you know what I find is the key, mm. the other key to good training, is I think you and I both take a very similar approach of people we're training with as we do with children that we're working with. And it doesn't mean you treat people with, like children, mm. it means that you hold them in mind yes. and you actually use these very mm. similar techniques as you go. In a way, the workshop itself becomes a trauma-informed practice.
1: Well, yes, that's actually a very good point because people will, every, every person brings into a training session a level of heightened presence because it's anxiety-provoking. You don't know what's going to be required of you. Somebody might say the dreaded role-play words. (laughs) People do go with some trepidation into training. Um, So we are also letting people know that they're going to be safe here and no-one's going to force them or push them into something they don't actually feel okay about. So it's about, yes, you take courage in your hands, but... You actually do it in an informed way, uh, and don't uh, try to stretch people where they're not comfortable. So I guess well, if well, we go into the wild blue yonder again and doing lots more trainings, Stefan we
0: have many more, and I, I just love doing it. I, I actually, I'll look forward to it i'd I'd love it, and after few years. I'm not sick of it yet no. and I know you're not. I'm not. I don't think I'll ever get sick of
1: it. I'll be going around those training rooms on my walking frame. <laughs> well, thanks for the chat. We've been, We've had a nice rave about training now. I've really enjoyed yes. that. <laughs> and uh, I guess we'll speak to all our followers and podcast listeners next time where we'll have another topic.
0: Indeed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. bye Bye-bye.